0: Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Our second lesson is found in the book of Philippians, reading in chapter 2. Reading from verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and give us understanding. Open our eyes to see what you have revealed to us and the life that you lead us to through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. As many of you know, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel to the Grand Canyon. My father-in-law has a bucket list, and in that bucket list are a list of to-dos with his grandsons, and I get to be the beneficiary of that bucket list. And so one of his desires is to take all of his grandsons around the age of 10 years old and have them hike through the Grand Canyon. Now that's not on a list of things that they recommend at the Grand Canyon, I discovered, because we only saw one other 10-year-old even walking on a trail in the Grand Canyon. There were no other children around. They all remain at the top. And so my father-in-law took my two boys, Sim, who is 10, and Ware, who is 9, and took them rim to rim. This is 27 miles, which is not that daunting in hiking terms. It is a long ways, but it's 27 of perhaps the most rugged miles that you can walk. It was difficult. It got more difficult for me because the weight each day began to increase on my backpack as things got imputed from theirs to mine. But there were moments where we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. It was the end of day two, which we had done 14 miles, and the aches and pains of walking downhill are rather intense. Downhill actually hurts worse than uphill. And so feet were swollen. There was a good bit of complaining, not just from the little ones. It was hard. And at the end of day two, you are arriving at the Colorado River. You've come down the Bright Angel Canyon from the north. You're arriving at Phantom Ranch and you're looking at a wall ahead of you. And you realize that in the next two days, you have to go up that wall. And it's hot. Perhaps the thing that was most unexpected about the trip is that the bottom of the Grand Canyon is like a convection oven. The sun bakes these rocks with with all of their beauty and they turn into just a heater. And so your body just starts coming apart. And so at the end of day two, there's a ranger talk, and so I took my boys to that, and then there's a cold stream running beside Phantom Ranch, and we went and put our feet in it, and our feet were all pretty swollen, and it was one of the most glorious experiences because it was a rapid that functioned like a massage, and then it was cold, so it took the swelling out. And suddenly all three of us, as we played in this stream, they were building dams and I was sitting there on my behind. And we realized just all of the grandeur that we were in, that we were facing significant adversity. And adversity has this powerful way of drawing your attention into a very narrow, self-centered focus. People were complaining about their feet People were complaining about the weight of their pack. They were complaining about not being hydrated. And so we'd gotten focused on all kinds of self-oriented things that were real, but they had overwhelmed us. And then suddenly we had this moment. It was like a moment of grace where it just arrests you, where you realize where you are and what's taking place. And over the next few days, it was the thing that perhaps helped us make it to the top. Because as you continue up uh, over the river to the south side of the Grand Canyon and you begin working your way up through Indian Gardens and then to the final ascent, on the last day you climb over 3,000 feet in under, un, under five miles. Hey, it was intense, especially when you're 10. <laughs> and there were moments where you just want, <laughs> many people wanted to fall apart. But you could stop and you could turn and you could look. And you could see exactly where we had traced. You could see our entire route back up through the Bright Angel Canyon across the Grand Canyon. It was this awesome panorama of everything that you had done. And so it gave you perspective of what was going on. And friends, in the midst of adversity, this is what we need. This is what we desperately need, is we need perspective as to everything that we're caught up in. And in the Christian life, this is especially true because we go through the same kind of adversity. Things in life are often hard. One of the most difficult things about hiking is just the mundaneness of it. Mile after mile of one foot in front of the other. You're just plodding along, wondering if you're going to make it. The most exciting thing is a trail snack. It's all some combination of nuts and berries, okay? And it gets tiresome. And then you have the wonderful thing of water to drink. And a real treat is when they pour some Gatorade powder in it. So, you know, life is bland. And the Christian life can oftentimes feel much the same way. It's very important to recognize the mundaneness of Christian living. That so much of our life can feel like one foot in front of the other with no awesome panorama. It feels like trail snacks and water. A pretty harsh diet. And we wonder if we're going to make it. And this is why Paul in verse 16 says, holding fast to the word of life. Because he knows there is this element to the Christian life called perseverance. That perseverance is necessary. About 25 years ago, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor outside of Baltimore, wrote a book, and he entitled it, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's what we're talking about this morning, is this persevering Christian life of keeping one foot in front of the other. And how do we do that? How do we do it well? How do we live this life of a long obedience in the same direction? And what it requires, is, requires of us is that we persevere, not losing our perspective in adversity. That's what it requires of us. Now, one of the things that threatens our perseverance doesn't normally meet our radar. Look what Paul says in verse 14, though. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You want to know how to persevere well? That's what Paul says. Holding fast to the word of life, this is what it looks like, that we do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now in these four short verses, Paul has a tremendous number of echoes to two places in the Scriptures. It's to Numbers chapter 14 and 15 and actually to Deuteronomy 32. But he's quoting passages that bring us back into Israel's experience. And these words, grumbling and questioning, come from Israel's sojourn through the desert. After they've been rescued from Egypt, they've been saved by God in His powerful grace, they are being taken to the promised land, and what do they begin to do? Let's turn to Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, And go back to Egypt. It's amazing. They had just heard a report about the giants who were in the land. That was the Amalekites, the people who were large and vigorous, that they were going to remove. And they melted. Their hearts grew faint. And do you see what was happening? They began to murmur. They began to grumble. They began to say, God is not going to make good on what He said. That was what was going on in Israel. And Paul echoes that experience to say that, that what was that is what was going on in Philippi as the people grumbled and murmured. And friends, part of our perseverance is recognizing the things that harm our perseverance recognizing the things that are important to God. And this stuff on unity in the book of Philippians, the togetherness of the church, the church living not in a selfish way, but in an unselfish way, to strive together as a community with one heart and one mind is crucial to what it means to persevere in the faith. And so when we grumble and when we murmur, there's much more on the line than gossip. Just let that sit for a minute. There's much more on the line than just needing to tame your tongue. That there is a deep spiritual problem, according to the Apostle Paul. That what has happened is we've lost perspective, we've become focused upon our own needs and our own hurts, our own worries, our own concerns. And what desperately needs to happen is we need to turn around and recognize the panorama. Everything that God has caught us up in in Jesus. And that God is not failing on His promises. That He will make good on them. That just as certainly as Jesus died and Jesus rose and He's ascended into heaven, so certainly will He return to reign and rule over His world and it, making it right and making it new. And friends, in the midst of adversity, like the Philippian church was facing, there was lots of room for grumbling and murmuring. For Israel, there was lots of room for grumbling and murmuring. For Christ Church Mandarin, there's lots of room for grumbling and murmuring. Life is always a fertile garden for grumbling and murmuring, okay? Our sinful selves gravitate towards it. The much harder thing is in verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is what God would displace grumbling and murmuring with. My oldest son was an incredibly fat baby. He was large, okay? We don't know where it came from, but he just chunked up. And so he slept through the night so early, it was wonderful. And I remember him being so chunky, going to wash him as a kid. It was my first dad bath, okay? So I was nervous. I had a you know, stranglehold on him, not wanting him to slip away from me. And I remember at that point, we we, gravitate, we, we graduated away from this. But at that point, we had like the little special baby bather, Okay we put it up on the kitchen counter, we filled it up, and then I put him in it. And he was so fat that he displaced the water everywhere. So I flooded the kitchen. You know? But it's just when you put something big into the water, it causes it to rise, the water level to rise, and you displace it. Friends, that's what God wants to do to your grumbling and your murmuring. He wants to displace it with something bigger. He wants to leave you to gladness and to rejoicing. The grumbling and murmuring is part of the old way of life that's been crucified and has died in Jesus Christ. It's part of the old, broken, sinful world. But now something new has come. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's ruling over all things. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you get caught up in that story and suddenly your adversity begins to peel back. You begin to see it for what it is. It's not that important in light of the big panorama of salvation that God is welcoming you into. He displaces it with gladness and with rejoicing. And this is what it looks like for us to hold fast to the Word of life, to hold fast to the Gospel. But why? Why do we persevere in this way, putting aside our grumbling and murmuring? Paul has a very specific objective tied to this. If we read along, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That crooked and twisted generation is a specific quote from Deuteronomy 32, okay? And it's actually not referring to the unbelieving world around us. It actually is referring to God's covenant community, those who've been brought into a covenantal relationship with God who are not walking with Him, okay? That's what Paul is directly referencing. So that's the crooked and twisted generation, and he says that those who are putting away their grumbling and questioning, that they will shine as lights in the world. So why do we put away our grumbling and murmuring? It's for the sake of the world. And so grumbling and murmuring is actually one of the more selfish characteristics of God's people. It's when we get lost in our own story with our own needs, and we forget our calling to exist for the world. Do you remember why God called Abraham? He didn't call him so that he could navel-gaze and be glad about his election. He did single Abraham out, and he says, Abraham, I will bless you, and I will bless your family, and through you I will bless the nations of the earth. That that is what God's special favor and election is about, is to exist for the world. And how oftentimes we take that gift, though, And we turn it around, and we make it about ourselves. And then we begin to ask questions of God, and we begin to wonder whether He's going to be faithful to us. And we get lost. And friends, to put away grumbling and murmuring, we have to have this rock-solid confidence. Rock-solid confidence that God makes good on what He says. That the promises of the gospel are solid and true. That they are pledged to you. That just as surely as Jesus died and as surely as He rose, so surely does God fulfill every promise that He's spoken. That He will right the wrongs. That He will overcome our adversity in the age to come. That He wins. And it's important for us though to recognize that as we live in this unity, as we live for the sake of the world, that Paul uses some other familiar Old Testament language to describe what's that, what that is like. Look what he says here in verse 15. He says, "...that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish." And then once again in verse 17, he is speaking of his own perhaps impending death. He says, "...even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering..." Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So now, two times in this passage, Paul refers to sacrificial language. When he says without blemish, the place that this phrase shows up in the Old Testament is the qualification of an offering. It had to be without blemish. A sacrifice was without blemish. And then he says that he would be poured out as a drink offering, which was a minor offering in the temple. And the drink offering was poured around the main sacrifice. He says that I would be poured out um, even as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. You see, Paul didn't view his sacrifice as the main event. Whose sacrifice does he think is primary? The church's. The church's choice to live in unity and to be together to offer a unified witness, to be of one heart and one mind, to live together for the sake of the Gospel, to put the interest of others ahead of their own. That's what he saw as the sacrifice. And friends, it is a sacrifice. You can think about how hard it is for a family to live in unity, a biological family, to be of one heart and mind. How much more so is it for a group of people? Remember this church, what it was formed out of? An ex-Roman soldier who was suicidal, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and a rich merchant woman named Lydia. God put those three people together and formed a church. And He said they were to be one family. And friends, it's impossible unless the Spirit of God is enabling us to live in a sacrificial way, to present our lives as a sacrifice to God because of the great sacrifice of Jesus, and that we honor one another, that we put the interest of others ahead of our own, and we do so for the sake of the world, that that unity speaks to our witness of the gospel. This leads to the natural question, though. How? How do we do it? The demands are rigorous. To press forward, holding fast to the word of life, to live in a sacrificial way, to put aside our grumbling and murmuring for the sake of the world. This is an enormous task. How do we do it? Over a decade ago now, I remember sitting in seminary it was one evening in my, in the room where I had my desk and I was studying. And personally, I was feeling overwhelmed. Here I was studying about all these great truths of God, reading about the Bible, learning so much. And my knowledge was outstripping my maturity. And it was very easy to confuse those two things. And I was struggling because I wasn't feeling that I was making much progress in fact in some ways it felt like I was regressing as my knowledge increased and I felt stuck in the Christian life and I just felt lost I knew that God forgave my sins but I was oftentimes concerned as to why that forgiveness didn't seem to compel me forward I felt flat and I was reading a book for ethics class And you want to talk about feeling flat. (laughs) But I was pounding through this chapter as a book written by a man named John Murray. And it was called Principles of Conduct. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, when you're feeling spiritually dry, this is not the place to go. Okay, And I had to read a chapter called The Dynamic in that book. And I began reading the chapter, The Dynamic, and understanding what he was saying, and he was speaking about the dynamic of the Christian life. And he begins to develop this idea that God gives us commands. Those are what we typically call imperatives. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That's a command. It's imperative. And he says that the Christian life involves imperatives and commands where your God has the right to tell you to do things and not to do things. But then he goes on to say as to why we can then walk in that command is because of what God has done for us in Christ. And suddenly this apathy that I've been feeling about the Christian life and the flatness began to melt away as I saw something new. And Murray discusses these verses, in fact. In verse 13 of chapter 2, why can we obey the command? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That God doesn't ask me to do anything that He doesn't give me the strength and power to do. That my obedience is not about me and it's not about my fortitude and it's not about my strength, but it is about the grace of God enabling it is about the grace of God at work in each of our lives. That my problem was not that I needed to be stronger in some way to obey God, but my problem was one on a lack of reliance. That I didn't find God's grace to be sufficient to change my hard heart. To break open my flatness. To help me and assist me and draw me into obedience. Friends, this is how we obey is that we trust that God is at work in us. That Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's believing that and looking to him and crying out to him. That God, you say you are at work. I don't feel it. But I trust that you are faithful. You are righteous. You make good on your claims. And so I ask you to come and help me. That was what I learned on that very boring, mundane night in seminary. Was that obedience in the Christian life was just as much about grace as justification was. That God freely accepts me in forgiving my sins and making me right in front of Him. And then God graciously and freely gives me the resources I need that I could live a blameless and innocent life before Him. That doesn't mean perfect. Okay? It just means a worthy sacrifice. That God would give me sufficient grace to do that. Friends, this is how we live in this life together. It requires the grace of God. It means that we have to look to Him and call out to Him. Be dependent upon Him. And as we do so, the murmuring begins to drop away. Because we're caught up in this great big panorama of salvation. That the church is offering a witness to the world for the world. And that we're welcoming them into this vision of Jesus Christ being King. Of Him making all things right and every manner of things right. That Jesus comes to undo the curse as far as it's found. That's the good news we celebrate. And that's why grumbling and murmuring gets put down and gladness and rejoicing takes over. And so let it be said of us, not that we grumble, not that we question, but that we're glad and we rejoice. And when people come into our midst, that's what they experience. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that grumbling and questioning and murmuring come so easily to us. It's what's natural in our hearts because we don't trust and we don't rely upon You. Help us to believe Your promises that every word You've spoken, You make good on. May we not question that. And so help us to displace grumbling and murmuring with gladness and rejoicing. Give us every bit of grace we need. You promised to do so through Your Son, Jesus. And it's You who is at work in us that we could put habits like that down. That they would be gone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.